Hi, everyone. This is NBC 10 Boston's question and answer series on Russia's war in Ukraine. Please continue to send your questions to Ukraine questions at NBCUNI.com. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Oleg Katsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for joining us every week. Thank, Thank you. you. So I wanted to start by talking about some horrifying evidence that has come that has continued to sort of emerge, uh, especially as Russia has pulled back from from the city of Kiev and the suburbs around it. And I wonder there was a particularly uh, um, some horrifying evidence coming out of the suburb um, called Bucha. And I wonder, uh, Ola, if you could start off by just telling us what happened there. Yeah. So there are three um, uh, neighborhoods um, around Kyiv, which are basically commuter towns. Uh, one of them is Bucha, the other two are Irpin and Hostomel. And uh, uh, in kind of in its effort to take Kyiv, Russian troops have rolled into the towns, um, have shelled civilian infrastructure, and as we are now finding out, have executed uh, several dozen, if not more, of civilians on the ground with particular cruelty. Uh, we don't have the full uh, picture as of yet. Uh, the images that have surfaced recently that were taken by uh, Agence uh, France Presse, as well as by other journalists and officials on the ground, uh, probably represent only a small fraction of what really happened there. Uh, we do have some um, imagery from the satellites uh, uh, kind of visualizing how the, the bodies of people on the ground have appeared there. And we know now that all of that happened while the Russian troops were in control of the town of Bucha as well as of other towns. Um, the images are truly horrifying and they testify to the absolute brutality and the hatred towards everything Ukrainian that uh, the, you know, the Russian government, the Russian regime has whipped up, uh, you know, among the Russians in, in Russia, as well as obviously among the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the forces, the military forces themselves, the members of the, of the Russian military. Uh, there are, uh, there's evidence of people being executed uh, while kneeling on the ground with their hands tied behind their backs with uh, pieces of white cloth, which usually has been used to signify that people are peaceful, that they are, you know, trying to get out of this, of the town or something else. Uh, there is now a video and several images of people uh, uh, having, uh, being killed on their bikes, trying to also either um, move from one part of the town to another or to get out of the town. Uh, there are several uh, images of people uh, crushed in their vehicles by tanks uh, driving over them and basically being killed in that way. All of that is just absolutely horrifying. Uh, there are cer certain, there's certain evidence that um, this was done also in, in a, in a you know, in a way to terrorize the local population uh, as, so as to suppress the resistance. And we know we know similar um, uh, history from World War II, 
when Nazis were executing one male from each house in front of the house in order to teach others a lesson. And so something similar we see here as well, because most of the executed people are uh, males. Now, the, uh, as terrifying as, as we, what we have seen is, I think there is more of, of this to be expected, in particular from those other towns of Hostomel and Bucha. In Hostomel alone, the, the currently reported number of missing people is over 400. What happened to them is very likely to be some, you know, something similar to this on a much more mass scale. Uh, the same in Irpin, images where people were trying to escape, as you remember, over a bridge, uh, you know, have already, uh, you know, have been circulated in the Western media, uh, but obviously more of that is coming. We're also hearing now from Mariupol, parts of which have been taken by the Russian military and which is under blockade, with, and it's that, that city is in the south of Ukraine on the Azov Sea, that the, uh, the occupying forces have began uh, cremating bodies of civilians uh, as so as to cover up their, their crimes. Um, the, the world cannot continue looking on, you know, on as all of this is happening. A severe response is required. The question is now what the response is going to be. And, and Maya, can you tell us what the response has been so far? Yeah, I mean, it's just a horrifying situation. But as Ola said, it, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg now in terms of the aftermath. Um, so I think there is a relatively strong international response, but there's still some discussion over what to do exactly about this and whether this rises to the level of, you know, somehow getting involved directly in the conflict. Uh, but one thing that I've noticed uh, quite a bit of in the last couple of days is just the expulsion of Russian diplomats across the European Union and by the EU itself, which is actually the first time the EU has ever expelled um, Russian diplomats. So I think this is one way that they're trying to retaliate and show that what Russia is doing is, is completely unacceptable. Um, and then we're also seeing the new round of sanctions. So one of the big um, new agreements, at least on the part of the EU, is to stop importing coal. It's still a relatively small area of energy compared to oil and gas, but the sanctions are starting to ratchet up and the US has promised more weaponry. So I think this flow of weapons has to continue and has to grow. Um, but you know, there's also talk of, of how, how can Putin be held to account down the road with you know, these war crimes that clearly the evidence is mounting that these are war crimes. Putin is a war criminal, the Russian military, they're not innocent. They're not sort of like, you know, these young men sent in not realizing they were going to have to fight a war. Now, some of them have actually embraced this war and they don't have any boundaries as to what they're willing to do. We can only imagine that Putin has allowed them to behave this way. And some of it clearly is a, a form of desperation. They can't win the war through the regular means of, of using, you know, typical battleground strategies. And so instead, they're punishing innocent civilians with this brutality. Pablo, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I would say I, I agree with, with Ole Mayov saying, of course, this is a terrible tragedy. And the evidence is becoming undeniable that war crimes have been committed in Ukraine by the, by the Russian military. 
I think that's going to be clear to see. And I think we have to make a distinction between two things here. One is what we do to, to stop this, right? And as ever, I think we are being, uh, the West response and the response in general has been a little bit slow, too slow, too timid, and it, it has to be stronger. And I think more relevant than new sanctions and more sort of diplomatic pressure that can be applied on Russia, I think the flow, particularly the announcement of the United States, that they're going to increase the flow of, of, of weaponry to the, to Ukraine, that's the sort of thing that really sounds the, sends the right message and a powerful message that the West is not backing down and that Ukraine is going to be helped and, and the, the right tools are going to be given to Ukraine to defend itself as well. And I think that's very, very important. And, and that's more in the immediate term, of course. The second, of course, the second element here is in the longer term, how do we make sure that justice is, is, is upheld? And how do we make sure that Putin is eventually brought to justice for war crimes? And I think that's a far more complicated and complex question that requires a lot of work on the ground, a lot of uh, gathering of evidence, uh, and then a lot of different things that need to happen and have to happen in order for Vladimir Putin to actually uh, be trial for, for, for war crimes. And I think that's going to be a long a very difficult road, and there is no guarantee that it's going to be successful. Uh, but I think the most important thing right now is to make sure how we make sure this doesn't happen, right? Minimize these events from happening. And if they are going to happen, how to make sure they're being documented. And in particularly, how do we make sure we communicate them? And, and I go back to a point I think I've made a few times before. How do we communicate this for a Russian audience as well? And I think at this moment in time, the only people that really have any agency over the actions of Vladimir Putin are really people within Russia. And that's the sort of people that need to be convinced and that need to be, we need to speak to them and say, this is what's going on in Ukraine, right? And this has to stop because that, at the moment, that's the only people that have any form of say over Vladimir Putin's actions. Yeah. If I could if I could just add a couple of things to this. Uh, number one, um, uh, perhaps some of you have seen uh, an article that has recently appeared on RIA Novosti, which is one of the largest state news agencies in in russia basically laying out a plan on how to punish ukraine and that plan basically amounts to genocide the idea there is that because of the so-called uh you know uh, impact of nazism on ukrainians it is completely justified to kill civilians uh, to exterminate whole the entire intellectual uh you know elite uh, to uh, deny Ukrainians the right to speak their own language, Ukrainian, uh, to um, to stop you know instruction in the in the schools on Ukrainian history and culture, and so on, and kind of and the way that this was laid out uh, basically points to the fact that uh, the Russian regime is preparing to explain or to sell the, the kind of the crimes against the civilians in Ukraine as a necessary step. And so the communication here and kind of, you know, uh, penetrating the bubble of, of informational vacu vacuum that Putin and his regime have created in Russia becomes ever more important. How to do that really would have to be a lot more, I think, creative than we have been so far. In the past, as you know, during the Cold War years, shortwave radio have been, has been used. Uh, uh, there, are other, uh, there are other tools now. Uh, there are about 200,000 Russians who have left Russia recently uh, who potentially could be talking to their neighbors, their friends, and so on, and trying to tell them the truth if, if they're willing to hear it. 
That's one. Number two, I would like to draw attention to the uh, speech that Volodymyr Zelensky has just delivered at the UN uh, Security Council meeting, in which he points to the fact that, um, uh, number one, the, uh, the entire system of uh, providing security in the post-World War II era has basically uh, uh, collapsed. And the, uh, you know, he kind of he made he made a very persuasive point about that the fact that the Security Council was created to to provide security, and we see that one of its members, or in the past several members, have actually been themselves the perpetrators of violence and have used the the instrument of the Security Council to block any possible action against themselves. And so the real the real challenge here is what to do with such a such a such a tool such an organization that does not fulfill its its mission anymore and then of course if we talk about the um, events on the ground we can now predict what what will happen in ukrainian cities once russians roll in uh russians have uh, the the russian troops have recently changed the tactic instead of trying to take the cities they have begun largely shelling them bombing them uh, from a distance, either from the Black Sea using the aircraft carriers and the various jets, fighter jets, or from the territory of Belarus and, and Russia. So the question is the kind of the, the military support that has been offered so far, uh, for the most part, included short range anti-aircraft, anti-armored vehicle uh, equipment. That is not going to do anymore under the current circumstances. Circumstances. So the, the pressure and the need for those fighter jets, for the anti-aircraft long-range systems, uh, is becoming uh, right now really, really urgent. Okay, great. And, and Maya and Pablo just brought up. So you guys just brought up a lot of important subjects, and I want to kind of like comb through all of them a little bit more. Uh, Maya and Pablo had mentioned, uh, I think that. And I just want to just kind of clarify for our viewers that President Biden recently announced that the U.S. would be sending 100 million in defense to be used for the for anti-tank missiles. And then they are we are expecting to hear more about sanctions today, including a uh, ban on investments in Russia and hundreds of. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, a ban on investments in Russia. And so. These have been kind of, and then Maya had mentioned that, you know, hundreds of, of Russian diplomats have been expelled from European Union countries. So these are sort of the immediate reactions that we've seen. But uh, as you guys mentioned, that these are pretty horrifying crime, war crimes. And I just wonder if we can get into what the process is to hold Russia accountable for them. I, I know that they're gathering evidence and that this is a bit of a lengthier process, maybe more of like a long term uh, tactic like the sanctions have been. But you guys have been talking a lot about as we've been meeting every week about the need to do something more now and, and talking about how a lot of these things are more long game uh, responses to what's happening. So I guess what what do you think needs to be happening now? Because uh, without, you know, without being held accountable, Russia will Russian military and and uh, troops will likely continue committing war crimes if there's no incentive for them to stop. So uh, what do you see as the sort of the immediate next step? Um, Ola, do you want to start with that? Well, you know, the immediate first step is to provide the kind of systems that can help Ukrainian, the Ukrainian army fight off the Russian, the Russian military that has been attacking, you know, for the most part, 
civilian targets to instill terror. That's the absolutely necessary immediate immediate step. Some some developments are, that that have that we have seen recently uh, are going in that direction, and that's a very positive sign. However, this is in no way sufficient. Uh, so Russia has so far lost about 150 aircraft uh, in Ukraine, which is tremendous. It has never suffered such losses, but it still has about 1,650 of those to continue pummeling Ukraine and, and the people there. So the reality is that the, the forces are, despite the absolute valiance and the heroism of the Ukrainian troops and the volunteers you know, who have joined the forces, the, the, the forces are so, you know, largely disproportionate that it's really hard to speak of, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, near end of the, uh, of, the, of the war. So this is likely to continue for years. And so are, are we willing to just look on as this, as this women and children and, and elderly men are being killed and executed on the ground? Or are we going to provide the weapons that you can help Ukrainians to beat them back and so that means honestly you know uh, so they've been discussing the uh, the old kind of soviet airplanes from the, uh, the 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 countries of the former warsaw pact perhaps we need to talk about the uh, f-15 f-16 and f-35s instead you know something that would be superior to what russia has and would allow with a smaller force you know maybe 20 50 of those air, airplanes to beat back the entire armada of the Russian forces that have been attacking Ukraine. So that's the most immediate step. And we need to be you know, very honest about this. Ukraine is just the latest in, in the series of war crimes that Russia has committed. For some reason, we don't talk about Syria anymore. You know, and there were other, there were other you know, uh, areas and countries where Russia and other, and other states have committed similar war crimes. You know, so we need to finally take a stand against that. That's number one. Number two, of course, energy remains the, the, the weakest, the Achilles heel of the Russian economy. The only way to exert real pressure on Russia is to begin limiting the, uh, the Russian exports of gas to the West. So that is Western Europe, that's United States, that, that's other countries in the West. Maybe now is the time to find mechanisms how to do that. It is difficult logistically speaking, but you know we are bearing responsibility for you know hundreds or potentially thousands and thousands of innocent people being killed because we cannot part with our comfort, right? So we need to think about this in terms of you know what, how much is human life worth to us? Pablo Maya. I, I, yeah, I agree with Oleg, and, and again, I think obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But I think we're going to end up where back to the beginning, and again, I think we're going to show that the West has been slow to react, particularly in terms of military aid. Uh, uh, traditionally, we we thought the the great strength of the of the Russian military was its use of ground forces of troops, and that's proven it's been the, the weak its weakest point, right? So I think to a great extent, if we help Ukraine control, maintain control of the skies and avoid the use of fighter jets and long-range weapons to attack cities that would seriously undermine the capacity of Russia to continue with the offensive. I agree that this will make uh, the the war perhaps a little bit more, more a little bit longer and it will be a, a longer war of attrition to a great extent, but this does give the ability to minimize to a great extent the, the, the acts of, uh, of, of criminality that we've seen within the conflict, because that includes troops on the ground, 
committing atrocities and trying to hide these atrocities, which is a lot harder to do when you're engaging in long-range missiles, right? It's, it's a lot harder to do these sort of things. So that would be a very important step. And I think that's what we're going to end up uh, doing, right? And, and it's, it's something that should have been done from the very beginning, but we were very tepid and we took very small steps. And everybody knows we're going to end up there in the end. Um, I agree that obviously sanctions are very, very important, but I think those are, again, longer term measures. And, and the objective of the sanctions is to strangle the US, the, the, the Russian economy, so it stops funding its military. But that is going to take some time. Uh, and that's going to take at least a few months. And the third front, which is what to do in terms of, for example, you know, what Zelensky was saying about the United Nations Security Council. And I mean, yeah, the Security Council hasn't been working for <coughs> decades, right? Some may argue that it's never worked. It was never really designed to work. It was designed to, you know, get the great powers do what the great powers do and maintain this particular arrangement. So I don't think this is going to change the Security Council at all. I don't think there's an appetite from none of the me permanent members of the Security Council to change their arrangement, because why would that be? Uh, this isn't the first time, as, as Lolek was saying, that one of the permanent members has blocked the Security Council in with their own means and to pursue their own agenda. It won't be the last. And I think, to a great extent, we're seeing the um, you know increasing irrelevance of the Security Council as certainly a security arrangement, right? The more and more members of the Security Council, permanent members of the Security Council, are willing to overlook it to pursue their own security goals or whatever agenda, whatever goal they may have. Uh, so I think really the only option, and I, I don't really like to sound particularly hawkish around these issues, but the one only option we have is to support Ukraine militarily to try to make the commission of these cr crimes harder for the Russian military, to get Russian troops outside of, of Ukraine uh, territory as much as possible and try to minimize the commission of these atrocities. And secondly, if these things happen, make sure they're properly documented, uh, evidence is properly gathered, and then you never know what can happen. Maybe in 10, 20 years' times, you never know what could happen. We saw that happen in the former Yugoslavia, for example. You never know when things might change, and you never know when Vladimir Putin and the Russian leaders and the military leaders may be brought to justice. Uh, so I think these are two very important elements that we have to take under consideration, the short-term issues and the longer-term goals and calls for justice as well. Maya? Yeah, I would just add to that, that even though it's it's horrifying to see these images coming out of Ukraine and, and the civilian suffering, you know, what we're doing is actually working at the same time as well. I think it's important to recognize that Russia is coming across much weaker than we initially thought it might appear. And Putin is it has made all these miscalculations. He appears illogical all of his goals that he puts forward to weaken the West, um, to force Ukraine into submission, all of these things, the opposite is happening. So I come back to the earlier point about, you know, when you see the military behaving in this way um, with these brutal tactics, it is in some ways a form of desperation. I think Putin's goal was to topple the government in Kyiv and to take put a puppet government in place. He can't do that. And so he's allowing the troops this leeway to to take out their anger and, and frustration and and just their their horrible you know sense of their own goals on this on the civilians. But Russia is getting weaker and weaker. The economy cannot sustain resupplying the military. Um, it's not just a battleground war. It's also a political battle, and he's losing that as well. Um, so I do think that you know, 
the the key strategy right now is to ramp up what the West is all already doing, not to relax, to sort of focus on other things going on in the world, but to continue this singular focus on um, defeating Russia. Because I think we, we are at a stage now where Russia and Putin are 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 weakened to a degree that there could be defeat of Russia in the future in some form. Um, you know, this isn't, it, there's a possibility of a protracted Cold War type of scenario in the longer term, but yet it's not like the original Cold War because Russia is so much weaker than the Soviet Union was and Putin is as well. So, you know, so one thing I think is we need to acknowledge it is working and we need to just ramp up more of the same, more sanctions, more um, military transfer and support and more kind of political condemnation of Russia. This could involve, for example, as Zelensky proposed, kicking Russia out of the UN Security Council. And as we talked about last week, giving Ukraine candidate status in the EU, it may not directly affect the atrocities on the ground, but it does matter in the overarching battle. So I think these are things we can immediately do. And, and as for the war crimes, just as has been said, you know, this is a long-term process. Trying Putin, if at all, would take years. So that's a difficult um, process. Yeah. And one thing that is also interesting is that in Ukraine, for example, the support for joining NATO has dropped rapidly. And I think that's the direct outcome of the image that is projected by the NATO right now as kind of, you know, not a strong force, number one. Number two, some, you know, as a, as a force that, okay, Ukraine may be not the member of NATO, but uh, purely in a, in a moral fashion, to protect the civilians, to help protect those uh, women and children is just a moral imperative. And the fact that NATO does not do that is significantly uh, damaging the, the image of NATO in Ukraine. And so right now, the kind of the support for joining the EU is, is you know, by far much stronger than the support for joining NATO, not because people have been scared by the war or something, no, simply because they realize that, you know, the more effective uh, you know, way of doing of, of gaining security is developing one's own forces while developing economically and integrating with the EU. And so that's, I think that's one, you know, outcome of this non-interference strategy that the NATO, although it's still interfering, but not interfering directly, you know, has, has created in Ukraine. And it will have its own kind of long-term consequences for the NATO itself. And we need to remember that too. Mm -hmm. Pablo, did you have something to add? Yeah, can I just add that I, I think I agree with, with, with both Maya and Oleg. And I think one of the risks that I can see here is that this could end up being a lose-lose situation, right? In which both Russia is shown to be weaker than it, than it, than it you know, weaker than we thought it was, right? And it, it may fail to portray the image that it wanted, but so could NATO and so could the West. And particularly if in this political battle that exists between NATO and Russia, uh, Russia is unable to capture Ukraine and to achieve his military objectives with the ease that they thought they would, and to be honest, with the ease that many of us thought as well, right? Uh, but also if Russia is engaging in war crimes and is destroying uh, cities and, and killing po populations and population displacement and is allowed to continue in this way, again, NATO is going to be proven to be very, very weak in the sense that it's going to be unable or even worse, unwilling to protect an ally country. And that's just, you know... A lose the situation for both sides, and 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 I'm afraid that could be a, an outcome that wouldn't obviously wouldn't be beneficial for anyone, and it may be 
less it would it may be better than a, than an outright defeat of Russia, right? But it's not it's not particularly good either. It's not it's not an outcome that we want to see. And I think it, it is a definitely a political battle, and it's a politic it's a battle for image and for uh, um, uh, projecting power. Uh, and I don't think either Russia or NATO are necessarily projecting power. And the view from from outside the West perhaps is is showing that uh, yeah. neither Russia or the West are particularly looking good from this conflict. Yeah. And Ukraine, just to kind of just to remind people, for, for those who don't who may not know it or may have forgotten, Ukraine has been a long-standing ally of NATO. The fact that Ukraine sent its troops to Afghanistan, to Iraq, you know, to uh, to all kinds of peacekeeping missions around the world and has been very effective. And in fact, if you may remember, Ukrainians were incredibly helpful in helping evacuating uh, some of the people from Afghanistan after the United States sudden withdrawal from there. And, uh, you know, kind of the success at the time was some of the most remarkable compared to all the others, uh, you know, struggling to extract people from the airport and negotiating with the Taliban and so on. And so people in Ukraine obviously remember that a lot more than uh, perhaps people here. But nevertheless, kind of the, the perception there is that while Ukraine is not a NATO member and therefore of course doesn't have the right to demand or to ask you know with some kind of um uh you know kind of rule or, or you know for support uh in terms of protecting its cities but there is a moral obligation because the values that the nato stands for are the values of humanity of humanism right and so when that is not being upheld that undermines that 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 standing that the nato and you know has had but I mean, I think we still have to come back to the reason why the West and NATO are holding back is because of the threat of World War III. I mean, it isn't that they want to do nothing or they think it's okay to sit back or it's like, well, we have a free pass because Ukraine's not in NATO. It's because Russia is a nuclear power and because Putin is behaving in a maximalist way. Uh, so hands are tied here. You know, I think Biden has actually done a pretty good job of trying to navigate this in a way where the response is strong and coordinated, and yet it is not ex escalating things to the level that spreads beyond Ukraine. So it is a bit of a conundrum here that I, I, I sincerely believe that the West would like to do as much as humanly possible to help resolve this situation and have peace and to protect Ukraine. Ukraine is fighting on behalf of the whole liberal world order. But at the end of the day, there is also this moral obligation to prevent World War III. So I think, you know, the West is basically stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we are trying to figure out ways where nonetheless it can still do as much as possible to help Ukraine in this situation. Yeah, can I, I just say, I entirely agree with Maya. And obviously I'm not, I'm not pretending that there's an easy answer here, right? And if I knew the answer, I would tell everybody and I'll be you not know, collecting my Nobel Peace Prize or something, right? I mean, nobody, nobody knows how to solve these issues, but I do think it's also a question of timing as well. NATO has had a bit of a beating lately, right? In the West in general, the withdrawal of Afghanistan, definitely didn't help. So all these ideas and this projection of weakness, right, and this perceived weakness, which emboldened Putin, may actually be strengthened with this whole episode in Ukraine and, and, and the lack really of the perceived lack of commitment by other parts of the world or non-Western countries as well. And I think it's it's all very much bad timing. And of course, there's no easy solution here. And, and I, yeah. I really don't know what the answer is. Yeah, and the, the question here is, we as, as students of history, 
looking back, uh, can we answer the question when uh, the Nazi Germany uh, annexed parts of you know Czechoslovakia at the time, when uh, when uh, it annexed Austria and so on? Was that already World War II or not yet? And the answer is yes, it was already World War II. So my view is that we are already in the Third World War. It's very unusual because it's nothing like what we've seen before, right? Nevertheless, this is already a real war on the ground, and it, the kind of the, the parties to it are the West and the authoritarian regimes. And the real kind of we, we may want to ignore the fact that we are already engaged in it, but we are already a part of it. And so the question is, you know, are we going to prolong this by trying to kind of not engage? or engage in a very minimal way and hoping that maybe the kind of on the ground, the smaller forces are going to fight it out against themselves, you know, without drawing us in, or are we going to stand up and, and do more to defend the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the democracy? That's because that's really what is at stake here, uh, essentially. So if, if Putin can exercise, and we talked about this last week, if Putin can exercise his blackmail and be effective in, you know, um, in his effort against Ukraine, what what will prevent him from making the same threats against Poland, against Hungary, against Germany, for that matter, or France? You know, so we need to find a way to project a stronger stance while at the same time, you know, engaging the, uh, uh, you know, the real threat here. Right. Well, we are out of time, which is unfortunate because I had a bunch of other questions for you guys, but I think it just goes to show how much there is to talk about and how many important subjects there are to sort of... Uh, dive into it at a, at a deeper level. So I thank you guys for being here every week in order to do that and look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.